Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. We are a learning community for people at a career crossroads, ready to rejoin their soul and their role. We have long-form conversations about self-awareness, relationships, tapping into your inner genius, and building sustainable habits. We are led by our questions. We're curious. We're storytellers. And the more we learn, the better we get. And there are people all around us who have done the work. We think they have a lot to say about how we can discern and activate our own purpose. I'm Shelley Prevost. I'm an educational psychologist and the founder of Big Self. And I'm Chad Prevost. I'm a media specialist. I write, research, and produce content across industries. To learn more about how to join the tribe, go to ShellyPrevost.com slash Big Self Society. Let's get started. Usually, we're going to be the ones asking the questions, but today the tables are shifted. You're an expert in positive psychology yourself, Shelly, not to mention the founder of Big Self. So I think it's it's a great opportunity to start the new year hearing from you. Welcome. Thanks. I have to say, I, I like tables turned the other way. I much prefer to be the one asking the questions yeah. than responding to them. And I have noticed in doing this podcast with you for a few episodes that you do have a a sort of a, a magic, I feel like at times of like how you are able to ask questions where you, you take it a little bit deeper, a little bit further. And it's, it's really interesting. I think more like a journalist and you're often thinking as a psychologist. Well, anyway, I'm going to see what I can get out of you. I have a few questions uh, in mind. Okay, shoot, go for it. <laughs> okay, well, first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Maybe not everybody listening knows, unlike myself that had to keep figuring out who I was, you seemed to be attracted to psychology from the beginning. You majored in it, then you went on to get a master's in, in counseling, and then a doctorate in educational psychology. What attracted you to psychology? When I, from a very young age, playing with Barbie dolls was my favorite thing, and it was always very relational. Um, building kind of these elaborate stories and sagas and plays. And I've always been interested in human behavior, um, really fascinated by the whole field of psychology. And when it became an option to major in that, I was like, well, I've taken the most classes of anything I've taken in psychology. So that makes the most sense. Um, And it just sent me down this trajectory of um, just increasing fascination with people, people are crazy, why we do what we do, why we have these predispositions and um, and just a fascinating study of, of humankind, really. Well, can we take that another step further? Like, I mean, so I played with G.I. Joe figures and Star Wars action figures, but, uh, and, and I remember in college thinking that there were some cool psychology classes, but was there one like that, like struck you? Like, wh- I, you, you mean you just kind of like, just were like, oh, I just took a lot of these. So I think I'll major in it or like what was kind of resonating with you that that kept you there? It just the- was a captivating study. Uh, you know, the, the thing is about like playing with G.I. Joe is similar to playing with Barbies, 
But <sighs> did your Barbie and Ken and Skipper, did they all have a backstory and they came from certain families and they had certain ways of doing <laughs> things in the world? Uh, so, I mean, it, it, mm. I, I don't know. I guess I'm just wired that way to really um, be curious about people and why people do what they do. In, in undergrad, for those of you all that have taken psychology or majored in it, you know, it's much more uh, social psychology, experimental psychology. I think I took one clinical course in my undergrad and actually didn't really like it because it was abnormal psychology. And so it was looking at a lot of acute mental illness and I've never really been attracted to that work. Um, so that's, you know, I, th I think just the, the overall kind of research aspect of getting to be a scientist when it came to people and behavior, um, that's, that's where the fascination was from. Yeah. I mostly, uh, you know, mine, they had backstories, but they mostly fought, you know, or they were like using yeah, the force. Mine didn't or, fight yeah, okay. at all. <laughs> um, they were lovers, not fighters. Yeah. Well, that maybe that explains it all. No, but here we are. And not only are we, you know, more or less at the top of a new year, we're also, of course, at the top of a whole new decade. And, you know, you and I have been through two decades together, as crazy as that sounds. The last one sure had its ups and downs. Can you talk about the high that we were on at the top of last decade? And then can, can we revisit the fall? Yeah. So it's funny. I've been, as you well know, I've been avoiding this podcast for like the last week and like trying to figure out why, what is my resistance? And I think that's it. Like mm. having to think through that whole period of really what started in 2010 um, and the crash that came out, you know, what was that? 2017, 16? Yeah. So, and then kind of this really beautiful kind of reset that we've been on with our family in the last couple of years. So it's still a very tender topic. And so, you know, I'll, I'll let you tell the story, but you also, I think one of the ways you're, you're framing it is you're thinking about five daily practices that sort of saved you through the crisis of what was a pretty significant failure as you've named it in your life. Yeah. Um, like, I guess, tell us a little bit, a quick story maybe of, of, of how broken you did feel. And then, you know, let's, let's take on some of the practices that um, brought you back. Yes. So let's give it a little bit of context. Okay. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast at this point, you probably already know a lot of this story. Uh, but in 2010, I was practicing uh, a psychotherapist in full-time private practice, uh, left my practice in, let's see, in August of 2010, I got my doctorate degree in counseling psychology. And then in November of 2010, I left my practice and went full-time, actually part-time at that point, and joined a local venture capital firm as their director of happiness. Um, really fun, um, invigorating work to really to coach entrepreneurs and be involved in culture work with startups. It was it was a, a really fun time. Um, in 2014, started my own technology hardware company with a couple of guys, and we rode that for a, a year or so. Really building the product, building the company, marketing, pre-sales, doing a lot of startup 
technology things. Pitching. Yeah, a lot of pitching, a lot of uh, fundraising, which really happened later in the company. But um, all told, we ended up raising about $4 million for that startup. Um, But it was excruciating. And I think, you know, people that have heard my story and my take on this, you know that through the process, it was that's when I got riddled with big time burnout, um, which is the huge reason why I'm so passionate in this work that we're doing now. Um, But yeah, it ended up not working. And, you know, there's obviously a lot more to the story. Uh, There's some damaged um, relationships, some damaged identity of my own, like really thinking about how the ego became such a a force in my life. And like, how did I get to the place where I sacrificed so much on the altar of success and building wealth and status, like, which, you know, was not my true core self or true core values. And so, um, the lot, a lot had to get dismantled in the process of me failing. And I, you know, that was a pretty, traumatic, tender time it was a for wi- all of us. Yeah, it was a wild ride. Um, I think we had no idea what to expect with like just the shift of, of gender roles, like me being the primary caretaker at home, you being the breadwinner. Like we were like, oh yeah, like we're, you know, we're very open-minded. We're egalitarian. We're about equality in our relationship and this is no big deal. Well, it, culturally, it was a surprisingly uh, big deal. Um, I think, we, but I, what I wanted to say is like, in a way, the whole journey you've been on throughout the past decade is kind of a coming full circle because I remember when you were first, you were first hired as the, what you were called the director of happiness. You were wanting to write the book. You were wanting to talk about a lot of, a lot of these things that I think now you've been through a lot of things. You've had some seasoning Mm -hmm. and experience. Yeah. And I think that I had some, living and some failing and falling to do for me to have the book to write. Yeah. Like, I think that's, that was part of the process for me. Um, I I think it's important for people to know too, that our whole family kind of had to reset. Yeah. Like as a part of me being um, with this, the venture firm, like, you know, we ended up, um, moving into this big, beautiful house. We put our kids in private schools and then, when my startup, which we had kind of put a lot of eggs in that basket, did not come to fruition, we had like the, you know, 2016 and 17 was a huge reset year for our family. And so we were all yep. trying to like wrap our heads around what's, what is happening? Like we sold our house, we moved, we put, you know, put, took our kids out of the, out of private schools and, and then you and I had to do a lot of, like vocational rethinking. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking come to Jesus meetings <laughs> where it was like, yeah. you know, what, what now what's next. And I, I've since learned that I think a lot of people go through this in their forties and fifties of kind of that middle age, middle life crisis of thinking about what we want the second half of our life to look at, to look like. And so you know, we got to that place and I don't know that we would have gotten to that place or asked these questions had we not 
been destabilized the way that we were. Yeah, I which feel, is the gift of, of some of this. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, you know, <laughs> you, you have to go no. through some hard times sometimes. Um, well, tell us the story um, of, you know, like a moment where you were you were kind of searching, you had already kind of bottomed out, and you found this book. You're trying to make me cry, aren't you? No. <laughs> yes, so there is a... Um, a fantastic book that I had heard of, but didn't really read or comprehend until it was, I I was sitting on the back porch right in the midst of kind of this crisis. And the book is women who run with the wolves by, I'm going to botch her name, Clarissa Pinkola, Pinkola Pinkola Estes. Estes. Um, And it's a, it's a beautiful book about just, you know, and again, intellectually, I knew about this book, but it kind of hit me in a whole new level. Yeah. <sighs> so it's a story about being broken, as I understand, and the the La Loba reassembles the bones and sings over them. And then, and sort of like, almost like a, uh, what is it that, is it the Gabriel uh, story, bringing the the bones out of the, the, uh, the desert Ooh, I hadn't to, even to thought dance, of that. the, the bones reform, reform into a wolf. And then La Loba breathes life and spirit into the animal. Um, and you know, the wolf, I guess, as I understand, becomes a laughing woman and runs into the horizon and is free. And it's, it's a kind of a, a mythological story, but it hit you on a very personal level. Broken. You know, I think that's the first thing, like, like, how do I rebuild and reset? The first thing I have to be aware that, that this is a pretty low spot. I can't keep kind of powering through. Yeah. Um, And if you all know me and spend a lot of time in conversation with me, you know, I talk about the Enneagram a lot. And the Enneagram is something that I learned about and um, wasn't really taken by it at that point. And it's kind of taken this resurgence in the last couple of years. And so I got reconnected to it and started studying myself. I became a student of myself. I really I kept asking these questions of how I got here. How did I get here? What has happened? And uh, it took me probably a year or so to really figure out that I am an Enneagram type two. Okay. Which is the helper. Um. And a part of, you know, this type of personality that I have is that we are very other referencing. And so I get a lot of feedback. I get a lot of um, data about myself, about life from other people. Yeah. And so one of the things I realized for me in order to, to be a whole healthy person, I had to pull back from the voices, these very powerful voices in my life that okay. um, I think in many ways were me- well-meaning and um, trying to guide me in in ways that they felt like were good for me or, but it, I mean, ultimately it's, it's uh, people have their own agenda and I lost myself in other people's agendas. Ooh. And so 
the the first practice that I didn't I wasn't even aware that I was practicing, but this kind of came from this deep need was solitude. Okay. Like I had to uh, pull back and from the chaos and the 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 needs of you know that people had of me, me wanting to meet other people's needs as a as a helper type. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even like you guys, like I'm still, you know, I, I get up early. I try to um, book, book in my days with solitude, getting up in the morning, 20 minutes at night. Um, because as much as I love my family, my family is my <laughs> priority. Like I need to pull back from you guys. Is and- it? Okay. So, well, that's, that's an interest. So I was going to ask you if you, uh, still practice it on a daily basis, or if it's something that ebbs and flows, it sounds like you you do generally f- try to find that space. And and then actually knowing this, I'll respect it a little bit more if I'm just coming down, you know, uh, so in the to morning you to leave and, me alone. Uh, and I'm breaking it. Is it uh, is it uh, a form of like meditation or or what what uh, what's what does solitude look like for you? To me, it is sometimes it's just sitting there. I don't, I don't meditate. Um, I don't, um, at least that's not the, the word I would put to it. Um, it might look like just sitting there with a cup of coffee. Um, I, I, if you do coaching with me or if you are in my boot camp, um, you know, I talk about the daily three, two, one. Yeah. So what I do is, um, you know, I'll write the three, um, three things I'm grateful for that day, the two things I must get done for my business, and the one thing I must get done for myself, a personal goal. Um, and that is a little bit of just a checking in with myself. Um, sometimes I'll read. Um, sometimes I'll just go out to the back porch and I try to go out and look at the sky before I look at my phone. And you know, I'm not great at that. Uh, but just these little pockets of time where I can just like just pull back, check in with myself. I like the that three, two, one. You've been we've been talking about it since you did the boot camp, and I've been trying to do it. I have to say, uh, the the every single it's like easy the first couple of days to name three things I'm grateful for, but then it just becomes really habitual. You know, it's like it feels like oh, family, health. Yeah, and you, you got know, you have to get granular though, yeah. and that's where the you have discipline. To get specific, you have right? to have you have to have a discipline, not just an arbitrary when I want to, but being disciplined. Like this actually helps me, and I have to do the work. There's a lot of science behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah there is. Um, the second thing, uh, the practice that has really saved me is moving my body. Right, and. Um, my mom, my family will tell you I have never loved exercise. Like I was never a physical kid. The only exercise I've really ever done was as a cheerleader. I, I would. <laughs> that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Yeah, and, and for many years, like I could not get you to. I, no. The only thing I could get you to do is go walking with me occasionally. And even then, I was like, just move away. Like I, <laughs> I was not happy. I had an attitude about it a lot. Yeah. Um, especially the mountain biking. Remember that? Oh yeah. Where right. you were like, come on, honey, you got it. And I threw my bike off I the mountain. I have just about never seen you have such a tantrum. <laughs> right about three months into our marriage, 
And I just bought you a mountain bike. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that was terrible. So the thing I I had to come to, uh, I had to rethink what exercise is. I still don't, the extra, the word exercise makes me cringe. <laughs> like, I don't even like to call it that. Well, I have to say you've been really disciplined. It's been like three years well, it now. Was, it was out of health. It was out of like, my body was falling apart. I feel yeah. like a 95 year old woman. I had the. Epstein, Epstein-Barr virus. Yeah, you went really bad. to, um, what kind of doctor? Like the... Chattanooga Functional Medicine, Dr. Scott Resnick, who was amazing. Um, he saved me on so many levels. And that's the thing, when I was such a like, pile of blah on the floor, I had a team of just powerfully strong practitioners around me. Um, I started seeing... Amy Flanagan, who was my trainer, who's a shout out to Amy. She's amazing. She's at the Y. Shout out, Amy. Um, She was huge in my recovery. Dr. Resnick um, really helped me with thinking about my stress hormones. And um, he's the one that we talked about intermittent fasting, which we'll get to in a second. Um, There's a huge, like, you know, I think some of the, I've been learning more about research with exercise and, you know, I think that there's like still this kind of fallacy. A lot of people exercise uh, for a lot of reasons, of course, but, you know, I I think that a lot of people do it because, oh, it's going to make me live longer. And, uh, you know, apparently the research shows that like it doesn't, it's probably not actually going to make you live longer but it may, the way it might help you live longer on those lines is it may head off at the past, like you not getting some kinds of diseases or having some kind of circulatory issues later in life. So it could head off the practice that way. But the main thing I think for exercise is that mind body connection, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, and the, I, like I had spent years kind of cut off from my body, like living in my neck up. So really emotional. I'm an overthinker, and so I'm in my head and couldn't really drop into my body very well. Like, I I just couldn't, I couldn't, didn't really know when my body was feeling anything. Um, And again, like, I think, like, I'm not a meditator. Um, It's really difficult for me to kind of check in with myself. And so I had the solitude really helps give me structure around that. And then the just moving my body, like literally just, you know, showing up uh, to a trainer, um, being aware of when I was hungry or thirsty or just like simple body things that I just completely had disconnected from. So it was through the movement that helped me kind of recalibrate, reconnect with just pretty simple bodily things. Feeling better. Yeah. It was yeah. huge. And, and, and t- you know, now I work out three days a week and uh, four if I'm really ambitious that week. And sometimes it's nothing more than just walking Jake around the block. But uh, my body, I know when I'm not moving it and it tells me and it doesn't like it. And so I've had this completely different re, re- new relationship with, um, with, quote, exercise. What's the, what's the third one? Intermittent fasting. So this is one, um, I am not a doctor and and a a physical medical doctor. You are a doctor. I am a doctor, but not that kind of a doctor. So go Google intermittent fasting and autophagy 
and you can see all the science that you want to see about so it. So it's not just about exercise, it's about diet too. This is a, a kind of yeah. a diet. So I, I recognized that I had, and Dr. Resnick let me know I had inflammation in my body. Um, my cardi- my cardiovascular health was not great. Um, I had the heart, I was 43, I think, when he tested me, and I had the heart of an almost 60-year-old. And it was all about, it was all because of stress. And so... The intermittent fasting, the way that it is explained to me is like, imagine that your cells are a little garbage disposal. And if you keep if you keep putting crap in your garbage disposal, it can never kind of churn through the toxins and the waste and the fats and, you know, all the things that we put in our body when we eat. And so the, the intermittent fasting allows your body and your cells to kind of turn over all the toxins. And so it's, it's been game changer for me. Um, it's pretty cool. Like I know that I like, feel better. it's easy to, I mean, relatively easy to, if you're conscious of what, of it, you're like, well, I finished eating at six. And if I just don't eat again until say eight, that's 14 hours right there. Right. Yeah. But like how, but what, what's the, how, what do you have to do to really make it like get into that? What's it where it's really getting into your like, reserves? It's about 16 hours 16 is hours. what they say. So I stop eating at 8 o'clock most nights, and then I eat again at noon the next day. Um, and at first, it was really hard. I had headaches. I was grumpy. And then, you know, my body just does, you know, that's what bodies do. They just yeah. adjust, and that's what mine did too. And now I'm not hungry. I can go, and I'll have my black coffee. Right. But, I, you know, it works. It's you really, can put some bullet coffee in there, a couple of drops of yeah. the bullet. Sometimes yeah. I'll do bulletproof. Bulletproof, yeah. Yeah. Um, the next one is gratitude, which we've already done a whole podcast on. But yeah, um, this was I. You know, I did a lot of research on this in um, graduate school, and it's just a practice. It's not something that I'm even. Um, I do write down three things a day that I'm grateful for, but not every day. Knowing the science that I know, it creates this kind of, um, not something I'm intentionally practicing, but it's almost that, you know, that really, uh, overused trope, which is an attitude of gratitude, Right. but it's true. Like I'm just, I'm, my brain kind of looks for things throughout my day to be grateful for. And it has huge dividends on my mental health. Um, so sometimes I'll write stuff down, but not all the time. And, but I think that just simply being aware of all the good things that are going on, even when we've been through kind of crappy things. Yeah. I, you know, powerful. We, I think our third podcast, we really focused on gratitude. And as a result of that, I did some research on it and I, I really was surprised of, of the levels, uh, and all of the different studies, pretty definitive stuff, that really demonstrates that there is a science behind it. It's kind of incredible. But with all of that said, let me ask you a, a question, uh, you know, that, you know, I know that gratitude can shift our mind shift, uh, sh- mindset and help us remain naturally more positive and optimistic. But, you know, could this having an attitude of gratitude also kind of just allow us to just be stay stuck in a way, just kind of be okay with the way things are, just be like, well, I'm, it's really bad, but I'm still going to be grateful for the blue sky and the chirping 
words. What, okay, but what what would f- feel stuck about that? Yeah, I guess I'm I'm more I guess I'm being more contextually specific like if you're in a situation that you're not happy in but you're going to still like have an attitude of gratitude does it take some of the punch out of your steam should there be a time where you're you're like yes i need to have a- angst i need to i need to like get out of this situation so your i'm question, not just grateful can you be too grateful or maybe hmm. erroneously grateful like too Pollyanna. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I, I, yes, I do think that can happen. Um, and I think that creates cognitive dissonance for ah. people when uh, your behaviors don't match your beliefs. And so that will come out. I don't, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that gratitude, though, is kind of the source of that. I think gratitude yeah. is... Um, so you're, think, you're just saying that regardless of situation, no matter what, always have gratitude and that will win the day. Well, I think gratitude mixed with some healthy uh, reality testing and checking <laughs> is that's the recipe for mental health. So if you're just always yeah. flipping it to what's going good, uh, then that's not wholeness. That's delusional, you know, because we do have things that, that we have to confront about life and, you know, flaws and failings. And so, um, but I think even in that there is, there's glimpses of, of things to be grateful for. And I think the vast majority of people struggle with not finding the gratitude. That's the, versus the vast, having too much. Right. That's a very good point. Well taken. Okay. Uh, so that was number four. So we've had solitude and then we had moving your body, intermittent fasting, then uh, having gratitude. These are the ways that you brought yourself back from that broken space. And what was the, uh, what's number five? Our sacred family dinners, which um, we both know you know, grew, and we both grew up having family dinners around the table. Um, it's a, you know, was a very special time for me and my family growing up. I know you and your family were the same way. Um, and then uh, it's funny, I posted in our Facebook group today the this idea that burnout is stemming from resentment. And so find out what you're resentful about, and that will help you start understanding the root of your burnout. Hmm. And I was really resentful that you were here working at home, but with the kids and I was not with you all. I was, uh, in fact, I, I, I don't, I was a part-time mom at best during a lot of that startup time. And I was so resentful and I remember I would, I would cry all the time and people are like, well, she's just real passionate about the mission of this company. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I miss my kids. I, no, I don't think you give yourself enough credit on that. You were, you had a flexible schedule. You, you met lots of appointments. You, you were able to go to a lot of the family yeah, night things. I, I think the thing is though, there was not the presence that I wanted there to be. I right. mean, even if your body's there and your mind and head and heart or somewhere else it's it's hard to 
have, you know, be satisfied in that. Okay. So family dinners, you know, we've, uh, I've written about Bruce Feiler's The Secrets of Happy Families and he said, and it's a great book. And to me, this is one of the main takeaways from that book is what, you know, it, it's, it's one of the main secret, so-called secrets to family connectedness is simply having these family dinners, it, it's, it, it, to me, it gives like structure to the day. And when we all go off on our different, you know, ways, we know that we're at least going to be, we're, we're creating an expectation that we're all going to get together for a little while as a family. But, but why do you think the family habit is so powerful? Yeah, I think, um, I think that's, that's it. Like you're, what you're saying to me rings really true. It's a structure. There's a ritual to it. Um, there's a groundedness to it. Um, you know, we're going to have a friend of ours on Hillary in the, in the next couple weeks to talk about personal narrative and storytelling and families. And I think there's yes. something about that, that shared experience around the table and that sense of connectedness that is so important for humans, but especially for kids growing up and trying to make sense of who they are and their place in their family. And so so me being a witness to that and being a part of that with them feel feels a need for me. And so so yeah, I don't I don't think that we'll ever not do family dinners. Um, you know, we don't do them every night. But, right. But they certainly are sacred so to, those were, to us. Yes, and they were some of the ways that you kind of uh, were able to build yourself back. I know also working with the Enneagram was important to you. And but you know, we're I think we're gonna do we're gonna do a whole podcast on it. You do a lot of um, work on that. Let's not dive deep into the Enneagram right now. I'm kind of more interested in this bottoming out thing. You know, we talked to Alex Lavage about it on our last podcast. And, uh, you know, he has a pretty positive way of thinking about it, but like you have been through a, you know, I mean, like part of big self is like, Hey, if you're, if you're burned out or you're feeling, you know, burnt out, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance probably going on for you. You're probably coming from a place of not feeling very happy, maybe an actual failing or bottoming out. But what I thought was actually kind of an interesting point that Jim Collins, the good to great guy, found in a lot of his research and studying like some of these top of the top notch uh, entrepreneurs that they studied uh, over the years on failure is, you know, he, it's, it's actually rare that some of these guys, um, really bottomed out. Yes. Steve jobs. Yes. Sam Walton struggled for a long time and yes, they become great media sensational stories where, Oh, look how low this person was and then look to where they did. But so apparently according to some of the research, you don't have to bottom out. I just, I, I, I don't know what you make of this. I find it interesting, especially because we, we often talk about the hero's journey and there's always this cycle where the, the hero has to cast about in the kind of lonely wandering period before they can come back whole and healed. What do you think of some of that research? What do you think about bottoming out and like and learning from failure? Well, I <clears throat> the, what I'm wondering is, especially in the research, which I don't know... Jim Collins research in this regard, but sure. you don't need to bottom out in order to do what in order to be massively uber successful. successful. Yeah. So I think, I think that the, the goal um, of big self would not be to help people create massive success. 
the goal of Big Self is to help people become whole human beings, to not sacrifice their work in the world for the things that matter, like their health and relationships and doing important, impactful work. Yeah. So, so I guess, um, you know, I, but, so but I you would think, but you want people to think big, right. And, and be ambitious. Yeah. For, but I, at what cost though? Uh, and I, you know, when I first heard you talking about Jim Collins research and what he found about not everyone goes through failure, I, it immediately took me to Father Richard Rohr's book, his powerful book, Falling Upward, yeah. where he talks about that fall, falling and failure is inevitable. If, to become a full, whole human, oh. we all must fall and all must fail. That's the only way that we... Um, that the ego loses its death grip on us. Because if it's still intact and it's still working... Why would we strive to become whole people and to huh. think differently? And to, it takes falling and failing uh, for there to be something to come back from. And so I, I think these are maybe two different concepts that we're talking about in terms of failing. Failing to what? To be more, you don't have to fail to be more successful. Okay, I, I can buy that. But is success your goal? And if, if it's not, if wholeness is your goal, if becoming, you know, a fuller, um, more impactful, happier, healthier person, if that's your goal, then I am here to tell you that you will endure some failing yeah. and some falling. That's well, I, part of, you know, welcome to the human race. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And well, and I was, I'm even thinking um, as a writer and, you know, like, you, you're supposed to get used to rejection, which is, I guess, a kind of a failure. And as a matter of fact, the more I learned about that is if, if you're not asking and being told no, you, you ain't trying, you know, mm -hmm. like, because if you, you can only, you can't be told yes, if you don't ask. That's right. Yeah. So I think that putting ourselves out there in an authentic way, which is what, you know, we're trying to promote with this big self work is it, it's inevitable that, that some things aren't going to work, you know, right. another metaphor I've, I've thought about is like, if you're trying to get better at skiing, you fall more, you crash more. <laughs> if you, if you, if you're trying to get better at mountain biking, like a, yeah. you, you crash more, if you're just kind of chilling and you're just going with the flow. It's like probability. The more you do it, the more you will probably get some skin knees. The law of probability, right? <laughs> right. Um, you know, another thing that I'm, uh, I'm always fascinated by this and I always, I, this is a, definitely a lifelong journey. It's about decision-making and it, it's actually one of my interests in this, with this podcast is I am constantly curious about the art and the science of decision-making. And I mean, I'll tell the little anecdote, there's many examples, but like, I, I remember, you know, like when I had finished being an English major at Baylor University and I didn't know, I couldn't make a decision about what I wanted to do. And I was 21 and I, I just was like, you know, I was coming from a ministerial background and, and, you know, I, so I was really, really in, in this, the religious subculture uh, at Baylor and, uh, and from, you know, from my family's influence. And I was like, how am I going to figure out what God wants for my life? 
Um, my dad always seemed to know very clearly every time we moved around, we moved around like six times when I was a kid. And it was always because, um, we were doing what we were doing the Lord's will. Um, so it seemed to me like, I guess I will go to seminary because surely a very powerful answer to what I'm supposed to do with my life will, will be opened up to me from my study. And I guess the long and short is over the years of interpreting all of that, I just did not, I was like very quickly, I found it's like, it's, you're, 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 maybe you're, maybe you're listening, maybe you're trying to have spiritual discipline. Um, but you're also just being, you're also just like, what are you good at? Also just like, what are people telling you you're good at? Um, also you, you're bottoming out. So I, I guess like I've, I have found clarity in decisions about who we, who we are, what we do. And when we take these chances are very difficult. Maybe I overthink it, but how in the end, Shelley, can we make better decisions? <laughs> so I, I think that was a lot. We, you're going to have to cut all this out, but. And just, just try to answer the question. Honey, you just said a whole bunch. Oh my gosh. All right, I'm keeping this. Like we're. <laughs> Um, Cause this is just us. Yeah, I know. But now I'm like trying to wade through all the, the thousand words you just said. Um, <laughs> I stumped the therapist. All right. <laughs> That's, that was my, that was what I was aiming to do. Okay. So this, you don't know how we can make better decisions. <laughs> You're not, you're not even going to try. <laughs> I, I'm thinking. I'm honestly like, okay, you, you had the you script. Had so, but you just literally read the the script. So I did not. You, I I said more than that. Uh, I know. I know you did. Um. All right, Shelly. Let's uh let's do this. We've talked about the five ways that you kind of built rebuilt things. Uh, I, I think another thing that is a value and a pillar of the big self. Uh, community, the, the the brand we're building is the idea of boundaries. We have done a whole podcast on boundaries, mending and maintaining good fences. But, you know, right, just why are they hard to maintain? What does it mean when it comes to building a business or staying committed to your goal? Well, I can certainly talk about that for a minute from my perspective. So, like I said, I'm an Enneagram 2. I'm a helper. And I think people want my help. It's not even a matter of uh, do they want it or not. I just assume like I'm helpful. I'm here to to help people and help them grow, I, you know, bring a pie over, whatever. And I think the the thing is with the boundary work uh, that I'm doing for a helper. Yeah. It's really important. Uh, boundaries are huge, especially for someone who just assumes that people want their help. <laughs> not everybody wants it. Mm. Not everybody deserves it. Um, so the question that I ask, and I got this from Suzanne Stabile, who's a Enneagram uh, expert, and she's also a two, so she's my type as well. She gets up every day and she asks herself, what is my work to do today? Mm. And I love that question because it sets boundaries around me. It sets some bumper pads up. So I don't have to walk through my day on autopilot, assuming that people want my help. 
it may not be my work to do that to take care of somebody's needs or to be there for them. Like it really is this powerful way for me to think about boundaries. Um, and you know, the fear is that it comes across as selfish or that it comes across as I'm just self-interested. But for me, it's a, it's a self-care practice that allows me to take care of my own emotions, my own behaviors, my own head, and not immediately jump into kind of other mode, helping other people. It, it requires that I take care of myself first. And so that question alone, what is my work to do today? His, uh, it's a really kind of centering question for me every day to think about how do I set up these boundaries? And I think every personality type has different needs around boundaries. Um, and so that's that's some of the work that I think people uh, can take from today's conversation, maybe look into the, their Enneagram type and what boundaries can look like for each type as they as they move through their day. Well, I think that is a good boundary for for this conversation. Uh, I think that this is a good stopping point. Uh, It's uh, been great to interview the the interviewer. And um, well, just thanks for your time, Shelly. Thanks, honey. I love you. (laughs) I love you too. Thanks for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, join in the community at the Big Self Society. You can also find us at big underscore self on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. What show made an impact on your thinking, your habits, your decision making, or anything else? Anyone you'd like us to reach out to and have on the show, let us know.